get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. What's going on, Ann Camp? You are listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast. This is Justin Gibney, the president of the Ann Campaign, and I am here with our special guest, the West Side Chicago representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Chris Butler. How's it going, brother? Oh, man, going really well. A little bit busy down through here, but it's going well. Good stuff, man. I I hope you noted that I didn't ask you how your Thanksgiving went because you don't celebrate Thanksgiving. So we'll move on uh, to Christmas. And I'll ask you, what's your favorite Christmas song, brother? Uh, This Christmas, usually this Christmas. Do you have a particular version? The Donny Hathaway version is the only version. I, I would agree that's the only version. I, I would agree. I mean, Chris Brown has one. It's not bad. But but if you're talking about that song, you got to talk about uh, Donny Hath. So I, I'm with you on that. It's actually not the best. The, the fact is, I'm doing a fact check. It's actually not the best song. It's like the second best song, uh, Christmas song. The, the first best Christmas song is actually the Christmas song by Nat King Cole. Uh, so next time you're asked that question, just so you're, you're more accurate. That's actually the best uh, Christmas song there is. So, you know, FYI, brother. I, I won't argue too much. It's very, it's very, very competitive right there. It, it, it's somewhat competitive. I mean, you can't have Christmas without the Christmas song, without Nat King Cole, right? I mean, it, it would be a weird Christmas, right, if you didn't have Nat King Cole singing in the background. No you doubt. Know, chestnuts worth roasting on an open fire, all, all that jazz. But uh, but you're close, man. I'm, I'm glad you have appreciation for for Nat King Cole and, uh, and that classic song. But but as many people know, we there's a lot of politics that's been going on in the last week or so, and we really want to get to it, man. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but we have some interesting subjects for you today just because there's so much going on. Now, while President Trump hasn't conceded, uh, last week he did say that he will leave office uh, in January as scheduled. And I know that's a, a huge relief for some people. Uh, that is progress. I had, I don't know about you, Chris, but I had a number of friends who were really worried that he would actually refuse to leave office, that he he wouldn't leave and would just stay there, especially if the uh, the the election was close. Now, while I do think that his efforts to discredit the election were predictable and, and really unfortunate, I, th- I think that's a bad look. I never really thought that he'd be able to stay in office after the election, especially after the states had certified the results. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, the American system and the institution of this, the presidency just wasn't going to allow that. I know people think he did a lot of damage and I think he did do some damage, but I didn't think he, he damaged the institution to the point where they would not be able to remove him if that were the case. And so it's good to see that he'll be going voluntarily. Uh, I never really bought into the rhetoric that Trump was some type of authoritarian dictator, even though I didn't like some of the things he did. I always thought that was serious hyperbole, because if you look through history and look with some real dictators are doing and how they move. It, it's a lot different. Um, it, it just seemed to be a really big exaggeration, even for some of the folks who disagreed with his antics. What, what, what's your point of view on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly had a lot of people who, you know, felt like, you know, he was going to try to stay in office. And, you know, I, like you, didn't think uh, that that was the case, um, not only because of the strength of the institutions, but I also just... Uh, you know, I, I, I think that folks sounded some of those uh, 
alarms a little bit unnecessarily. I, I, I won't say that, that it was, you know, anything more than unnecessary. But I, I just think that sometimes, you know, when we disagree with folks in politics, uh, our inclination, especially in the current environment, is to try to push it to the most extreme uh, kind of positions and, and accusations. And I didn't see a lot um, that would suggest that that Donald Trump would, would try to stay in office like that. I mean, will he will he be, you know, angry and, 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 and leave in, in, in the kind of displeasure that we see? For sure. But to, to try to occupy the office of the presidency, you know, beyond a certified election, beyond a uh, an electoral college vote, those types of alarms seemed uh, as unnecessary as some of the antics that we uh, have seen from the president. Yeah, I agree with you. It just wasn't that we weren't that far down the road. And, you know, I think one of the things that plays into this is it's good for cable news rating. <laughs> and so people hear it, they're going to say it, they're going to repeat it because it's going to keep you watching. It's going to keep, you know, you're going to make sure that, uh, uh, man, he has to get out of here. I need to watch everything that's going on because this could get bad and it, it could get bad. And we're not belittling some of the negative things that he did. But that was a bit of an exaggeration. And I'm with you, Chris. I, I don't think uh, what was going on call for that type, that level of alarm. But uh, it's good to see that we're moving forward. So, uh, as you know, Biden is putting together his cabinet. Uh, this is what we call the transition. He's getting, uh, at, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago that he wasn't allowed to kind of transition. They weren't giving him the information. Well, the Trump administration is giving Biden's team uh, the information they need to make this transition, which is very important. Uh, one of his first choices, which is a big choice, is it looks like Janet Yellen will be the first female Treasury Secret Secretary. Um, that name probably rings a bell with most of you. Most of you are familiar with it because uh, she was the chair of the Federal Reserve from 2014 to 2018. Now, just so you know, Steve Munchen is in. Uh, he's our current Treasury Secretary. And, and this job is an important one. I mean, the, the job is really about maintaining a strong economy, uh, fostering economic growth and creating jobs. Those are things that affect all of us. And so this pick is a big pick. And I don't think it's a pick that anybody could say uh, doesn't have the experience to do the job. People may disagree with her uh, ideology or choices that she's made before, things she's been a part of, but you can't say that she's not uh, uh, qualified to take on this job. So we will pray that she does a good job in what's in the best interest of the American people. Another big pick that he made, Chris, was uh, Antony Blinken. Uh, he is a former Obama administration guy, and he will be the secretary of state. Um, many of you know that Mike Pompeo is now in that job. He's had some interesting things to say as of late. Uh, but just so you know, the secretary of state is basically the president's chief foreign affairs uh, advisor. Um, this is the guy that's going to be kind of pushing forward the president's uh, foreign policy and, and really having a, a big hand in those conversations. And Blinken's an interesting guy. I mean, it, it sounds like he's he's more on the globalist side of things. Uh, so he will definitely not be going along with Trump's America for America's first position. And that's going to be interesting, too, my, uh, Chris, because I think, you know, while I don't think a lot of people liked the president's rhetoric when it came to his America first uh, policy, I'm not sure that a lot of people completely disagree with the position. Uh, I'm not sure that that kind of neoliberal position that Blinken may be taking is as popular as it was maybe in the Obama administration. So that's something that we're going to have to look at. Now, I'm not going to give to every position, but I want to give you some of the big ones and we'll just kind of go into the discussion. 
Uh, something else that Biden did was he is bringing in an all uh, woman uh, White House press team. And this press team will be led by Kate Bedingfield, uh, who will be the uh, communications director. Now, Jennifer Saki will be the press secretary. Uh, we know that the press secretary is the person who handles press conferences for the president. When the president is around, it's kind of like the face or the voice of uh, the administration. And Saki is also an Obama alum. Um, now, this one was a little bit controversial, but it didn't really rise up to to, to be a big uh, issue. Several of my friends who are close to the Biden administration or the Biden campaign, I uh, don't get ahead of myself, uh, were kind of disappointed because they wanted Simone Sanders, who is a, is a, a black woman uh, and kind of ran communications for the campaign. They wanted her to be chosen as the press secretary. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, now, here's the selection, Chris, that I think caused the biggest stir within the Democratic Party, but also among Republicans, because they had something to say about this, too. And that was the selection of Neera Tandon, who was chosen as the director of office management and budget. Uh, she is, again, a, a former Obama campaign policy advisor. Uh, she's currently the president of the Center for American Progress. And she's been one of Bernie Sanders' most outspoken critics. I mean, she she hasn't... Uh, uh, she hasn't handled him with kid gloves. She's had a lot to say about Bernie Sanders and kind of the social, uh, the Democratic Socialist position. Uh, uh, she's just, I can't think kind of outspoken in general. And I don't mean that as a, as a pejorative. She is kind of like a talking head also. She, if you watch uh, the Sunday morning political shows, you've probably seen her on there. So she's, you know, she's fairly well known. Um, and her job will be uh, in this position, it will be budget development managing agency performance. So that's big. I mean, what these agencies are doing is a big deal. Uh, coordinating legislative matters and uh, handling executive orders. Now, even though this is one of Bernie's biggest cr critics, uh, he seems to be playing it cool, but that's not so for all democratic socialists. Uh, some of them have been very vo vocal about their disappointment about this choice. Um, they're saying, you know, some people are saying that it's a slap in the face. And I think when we look at Biden's uh, selections uh, for his cabinet, he hasn't given much ground to the progressive left at all. I mean, it looks very much like an Obama administration. And uh, we'll just have to see, you know, how that goes. So, Chris, what are your thoughts about the Obama? And I mean, <laughs> I keep saying the Obama administration because it looks like the Obama administration. What are your thoughts about the Biden cabinet and some of these selections that we've seen already? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the um, the message seems pretty clear, right, that, you know, you see him putting together administration with folks who do have a lot of experience. You may not, as you said, Justin, agree with everything that, that the, the folks have done or what they believe, but they certainly uh, come to these roles with experience, which I think is something, you know, to me, something to, to be appreciated. But, you know, you also see uh, Biden saying, you know, he won the election. And I think that's something that every person and, and every wing of any party on both sides of the parties, uh, the party line, rather, uh, really, I think, need to appreciate a little bit more. Right. At, at some point, you know, these folks win elections. They put together teams based on their uh, approach, their policy, what they believe. This doesn't mean that there's no room for uh, diversity and, and argument in in government and in the civic and political space, there certainly is that that stuff is, is necessary. Um, but 
But, you know, that's why we have elections. You know, we have elections, folks cast votes, leaders are selected, um, and, and they get to lead. Um, you know, so he's got to put together a governing coalition, if you will, and I think he's aware of that. I think that what, what I see is that, you know, I, I see a, a person who maybe believes the stuff that he talked about in the campaign, and it's kind of done in government for a very long time, a little bit more than certain folks might have alluded to, right? Like, you know, because people will say, you know, well, you know, Biden is going to give everything away to the very progressive wing of the party. And right now, that's not happening. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in that. I won't say that I'm uh, encouraged, but I'm certainly interested in that. And, and I, I appreciate an approach to leadership uh, that, you know, that has the confidence of, of winning the election and having a position and, um, you know, work according to your conviction. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you bring up a, a very good point, Chris, which is that so much was said, especially from the right, that Biden was just going to let these uh, Democrat socialists take over, that the progressive left was going to run everything. But again, this this doesn't look like it. It looks like he's saying, look, I'm in office. I'm going to choose the people that I want to. And he's not really giving much of anything to the progressive left. Now, there's still a ways to go. There's still decisions that he'll make and policies that he'll put in there. But as far as the people that he's putting in certain positions, uh, these are the same people that you would you would you would likely see from the Obama administration. Now, now, Chris, the other thing, you know, we're assuming that these nominees are going to are, are actually going to be able to uh, to 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 um, uh, be selected, that they'll act, that, you know, that they'll actually go through the process. But Mitch McConnell may say, I don't want some of these people. Right um, now, I think that would be silly for him to do, not only because this isn't the kind of scary people that I think a lot of Republicans were so, so worried about. But traditionally, you allow the president, unless it's something extreme, to choose his team. I mean, the people chose him. You allow the president to choose his team so he can run the country the way he needs to. And the Congress does what they need to do and their responsibilities. But you generally don't get that much pushback uh, for the people that you put in office. Now, let me be clear. Uh, Democrats did push back some Democrats on, you know, on some of uh, Trump's uh, nominees. Uh, But it's going to be interesting to see if Mitch McConnell goes along with it. Um, I don't know why he would push back on some of these nominees, but you never know. And we'll have to keep an eye to keep an eye on that as well. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I would I would just say you know when when it comes to uh, you know Tandon's nomination, uh, Bernie Sanders is going to get a vote in the Senate. Um, you know, and and that could be some indication of how things will go. You know, throughout an administration. Yeah, that's right. That's going to be kind of our first indication of that. So so will these folks get confirmed? Uh, they've been nominated or will be nominated formally a little later on. But will they be confirmed? Will there be any kind of obstacles to that? That remains to be seen. We're going to take a quick, quick break and camp and we will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. All right, Ann Camp, uh, I want to give you a, a little uh, background on something uh, about a certain group of people. Uh, the Uyghurs are an oppressed ethnic minority in China. Uh, they are subject to things like uh, forced sterilization for population control. Many of their women are involuntarily sterilized once they have two children. Uh, and some are even forced to have abortions. The Uyghur people have no privacy in China. They're subject to all kinds of intrusive surveillance. 
the children, the children are separated from the parents in detention camps sometimes. Uh, in fact, there have been over 85 concentration camps that have been confirmed in China and over 3 million, uh, 1.3 million, excuse me, over 1.3 million Uyghurs are in these camps in China as we speak. Now, the Chinese government, as it tends to do, lied about the existence of the concentration camps, much like they lied about uh, the COVID crisis uh, that I think cost us many lives. And the Uyghurs are just mistreated. I mean, the Uyghurs are beaten because of their religion. Many of them are Muslims. And we know that it's not only Muslims that get mistreated in China. It's also Christians. Uh, Very severe uh, mistreatment here. Uh, They're forced into slave labor. Uh, They are uh, there are earnest attempts by the Chinese government to brainwash them. Uh, and they're struggling through really, Chris, what amounts to cultural genocide. I don't, I don't know any other way to put it. Uh, it's a serious situation. And these people are not treated with human dignity. Now, thankfully, in response to uh, the treatment of the Uyghur people in China, Congress has drafted the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Now, the general subject of this bill is human rights. Now, as I just stated, China still has major human rights violations going on as we speak. Now, what this bill does is it says that goods that are manufactured by convict labor, by forced labor or by indentured labor labor cannot enter the United States. Now, this bill would ban uh, United States companies from relying on Chinese forced labor. And it also blacklists certain Chinese companies who use that type of labor. Uh, this bill, I think, it, it, rightly so, places the burden on the companies who are importing from China to prove that their goods aren't create aren't being created by forced labor, and it sanctions countries and others who fa- who facilitate that kind of labor. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to give you that background. We should all look this up. We should all care about what's going on with the Uyghur people, whether they are Muslims or anything else. They should not be treated like this. Okay, so that's the background. Now, the New York Times is reporting that companies like Nike, Apple and Coca-Cola were actually lobbying to water down this bill. Now, this bill uh, has already passed through the House. I think it was only like single digit number of people who voted against it. So this was a, a bipartisan effort to say this needs to stop. It got through the House as polarized as the House is right now, got through the House, no problem. Only a few people voted against it. It's expected to be able to go through the Senate in the same way. That's big in this, again, very divided political environment that we have. This bill got through because everybody sees the need for it. And yet these companies lobbied, paid people to go in and water this bill down. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Ann Camp. I'm confused. I'm confused because y'all told me that Nike was woke. They paid Kaepernick. They did some social justice commercials. And you guys told me that they were down for the cause. Yet they lobbied to water down a human rights bill. This is similar to what we saw going with, uh, on with the NBA. I think it was earlier this year, right? The NBA had all its social justice messaging, but they dared not step on China's toes when Chinese money was on the line. You know, Chris, to me, this highlights a big issue in the social justice conversation. 
uh, it has become the social justice conversation has become so performative and so pseudo liturgical that once someone jumps through the right hoops, the right circus hoops, we deem them woke even when they haven't done anything substantive, not relative to what they should be doing. We're easily amused by these, by this, I guess you could call it cheap virtue signaling, but they haven't even made any of the hard decisions. I think we have to be honest that a lot of these companies support social justice rhetorically and performatively because it's trending, because it's good for the brand, and it helps the bottom line. Look, pop culture says social justice is cool right now, so it's profitable. They'll boycott states trying to pass religious liberty legislation. They'll parrot the the talking points given to them by activists. But when the money bag is on the line, we see where they stand. We see what it's about. This should cause the folks, and I'm about to hand it to you, Chris, but I really think that this should cause the folks who don't want to speak to other Christians because of who they voted for to examine themselves. Are you going to stop supporting Nike and Apple? And if you don't, it could be said, as you might say about others, that you're condoning human rights violations. And these are no small violations. We're talking about concentration camps. We're talking about people being split up from their parents. And that's not the big, the biggest part of it either. Forced sterilizations. Forced abortions. Poor, oppressed people being forced into jobs that really pay nothing. So I'm just saying the point that I'm trying to make is before we get too self-righteous about our issues about the issues that we've chosen to prioritize, let's acknowledge that we might also need to step up our game on some other serious human rights issues. Let's ask ourselves this. Can you pass your own purity test on this particular issue? Do you apply the same standard to yourself as you apply to others on the issues you care about? Now, I know you didn't vote for Nike. I know it's not a perfect comparison. It can't be false equivalency because this is worse than what you, a lot of folks have been talking about here in America. But we got to think through this. And we've got to think through this in a, in a real way without making these convenient exceptions for ourselves, because this is a serious issue. If you hate people who don't speak up for your issue, should people hate you for not being on the front lines of this issue? for continuing to buy the products. And I'm not calling for a ban. I'm not calling for any of that. I'm talking about how you should be processing this, right? This is not meant to trivialize social justice work or to cause you to stop telling people to do justice. You should do that. We advocate, we promote doing that. That's the right thing to do. It is to say that you might not be as conscious or as pure or as woke as you think you are. And that you might need to, or that you might need the grace that you don't give to others. So let's work through this issue. Let's not be self-righteous as we move forward. Now, before I pass it to you, Chris, I'm just going to give this full disclosure. Because on the Church Politics podcast, 
we don't do the holier than thou thing that me and Chris are perfect or anybody else is perfect on this show. I'm going to be honest with you. And this is not a joke. It's not any of those things. I have on Nikes right now. When I dress down, I usually have Nike, you know, shoes on a Nike suit on. or I might. I love Jordans. OK, I wear J's a lot. I'm recording this podcast on an Apple computer. I have some thinking to do. So this is not me saying you're a terrible person. I'm, I'm, I'm all good. This is me saying don't be self-righteous and that we need to address this issue. Chris, what do you have to say about this issue and just the over, you know, just kind of like the, the larger subject of corporate wokeness and what that really means? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it brings up a uh, a really important thing to think about. A lot of what uh, you said, uh, Justin, is so it's so helpful. Um, I am, am not wearing Nikes. I, I am on an Apple computer. Um, but it, it also pushes us into this conversation just about the the cultural wokeness as well, right? Because the, that that corporate wokeness and that corporate involvement with uh, social justice efforts um, is something that always uh, gives me a lot of pause. Um, just because when we look at these kind of uh, these large corporations and, and pop culture uh, as as the kind of driving force of social justice. Um, it, it, it makes me wonder if we can really uh, get to the places that, that I think social justice uh, is trying to drive us toward because there is so much, um, you know, profit motivation and, um, you know, beyond the profit motivation, the kind of celebrity motivation that is involved with pop culture, when so much of social justice involves sacrifice, not 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 only for those who have power and, um, and 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 that kind of thing, but also for those who who are in the struggle, right? Like it it often um, requires a lot of sacrifice when you look historically. Uh, at social justice movements. And so when you have a social justice movement uh, that does make you famous and does make you popular and earns you money, you know, it, it gives me pause and it makes me consider, you know, are we heading in the right direction when the movement is being promoted by large corporations? Uh, and then a, a, an article like the one that you referenced in, in the New York Times uh, comes out that suggests uh, that these same corporations are uh, then involved with lobbying against a piece of legislation that passed the House of Representatives uh, in this House 406 to 3. Nothing passes the House of Representatives. The, the existence of the House of Representatives might not pass with that kind of margin uh, in this divided world, and yet these corporations are are still lobbying against it. And it just brings me back to this point. Uh, as, as somebody who, you know, I, I say all the time, I was raised in the wild by organizers. Uh, and so having studied movements uh, and social justice and, and worked in, in neighborhoods, difficult neighborhoods, doing organizing, knocking on doors and talking on porches and, and, and doing that kind of work. And then you see a social justice movement that, is becoming so connected with kind of corporate culture and pop culture. Um, man, it, 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 it always gives me pause. And I feel like this, this article 
kind of brings to the fore why those feelings are always there. Yeah, that's real. I mean, I think what you're getting at, and you made some excellent points, is you got to be careful mixing social justice with a profit incentive. And the truth of the matter is, when it comes to these corporations that are acting like they're woke, their bottom line is still the money. They, they've got shareholders, right? They have a fiduciary duty not to do anything that's going to hurt that company. And so when they, you know, when they support certain issues or whatever, you have to be very careful because you got to make sure that that's being done for the right reasons. And it's not the profit incentive. I saw so many people on the Internet with, with some of the stuff that Nike was doing. And we don't just want to focus on them. But this is just an example. Just like, man, this is great. You know, this is huge. Blah, blah, blah. All the time, all the while they're getting this like free advertising. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like this is putting the brand out there. It's the cool thing to do to be talking about social justice. So it may look like. And it's always couched in the terms of the little guy and fighting against, you know, the man. But if every corporate big corporation is doing it, who are you fighting against? You know, like who are you fighting against? And that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be fought, but we have to question that profit, you know, that 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 profit motive. Um, and that's really that incentive. Those incentives that corporations have are very different uh, than the incentives that somebody who's uh, organizing in the in the streets of Chicago is going to have right uh, now. Now you know that doesn't mean they shouldn't have any money or, or be worried about it at all. That's not that's not what we're saying. But it's a whole you know when you got that incentive, it's a whole different ball game. So that 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 profit uh, motive needs to be considered. And one thing that I always talk about in these conversations too, especially when you talk about some how some of these countries how some of these companies have actually. Uh, boycotted certain states because of religious liberty and things that weren't cool in, 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 in pop culture is I always go back to the fact that Martin Luther King once said that there is a such thing as unjust boycotts. Um, when people have, when people with the power, so for instance, you know, in the South, you had um, this, you know, these white citizens groups that would come together and they would basically boycott you know, people who tried to help and move forward with civil rights. When the people in power and in these huge corporations and the people with all the resources start to boycott, you got to question whether that's a just boycott or not. Does it have the same, you know, does it have the same effect, especially when we know that there are those profit motives out there and that it's really about the bottom line? Like, am I going to lose money from going to this place or am I going to gain it? That's really what the question is a lot of times. It's not necessarily the morality of the issue. Uh, so we have to be very careful in how we engage those conversations. I just want people to be able to have a little humility when we look at others and the issues that they miss. Because as we talked about either last week or the week before, there are issues that we miss. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't push those forward and promote them and hope that people deal with it and, and really be passionate about it. It just means there needs to be a level of humility because you're not fully uh, clean either. And we should all try to be as much as possible. It's not just to throw our hands up and say, there's nothing I can do, but we need to give people grace. Yeah. Any last words on this subject, Chris? Yeah, I, I would just say that that one other hard question that we should also be asking ourselves, because this, this profit motive uh, is not just for corporations and, and, and that, uh, that kind of celebrity motivation is not just for uh, those who are very famous. All of us need to be asking uh, the question, are we in this because it is right or are we in this because it is popular? Uh, because two things. One, there will come a day when this is not the issue du jour. 
uh, and will we still continue to struggle? Uh, is one of the, the great questions that I have for the incoming Biden administration. Um, how high up on the agenda is real uh, reform and policing going to actually be if there is no new flashpoint um, uh, event uh, to, to drive that narrative? And we need to be asking ourselves that question. Are we in it because it is right? Because one, one day it won't be popular. Uh, and it certainly won't stay as popular as it is right now. Uh, and then, two, there are other things that that we already know are right. And are we willing to struggle as publicly, as diligently uh, for those things, uh, even when they don't bring us a, a lot of, uh, you know, retweets and, and likes on Facebook? And we don't see uh, these issues. You won't see religious liberty in a Nike ad. but are you willing to struggle for that because it's right? Man, that's a, that's a good word. And, and, and you know, it just as well as I, these are these are things that the AND campaign has to confront. The truth of the matter is we would probably have more donors if we didn't talk about the Christian sexual ethic, because that's not something you should talk about. Uh, we would probably have more donors if we didn't go so hard on social justice and what it's going to take to get race right in America. Some people don't like that, but we can't stop doing that. And I want y'all to call us out if you ever hear us stop stop talking about those tough issues because they're not in vogue anymore. Uh, it makes it tough. Uh, you know, you stay a lean organization, but you have your integrity and you represent your father. So that's what we're about. And we're going to get into another conversation about the American family versus markets next. We'll be right back in camp. We are back for our final segment. We've talked about Biden's cabinet. We've talked about corporate wokeness. Now we want to talk a little bit about markets and family. Um, Gracie Olmstead wrote a brilliant piece on the mere orthodoxy platform called Markets and the Strangulation of the American Family. Again, that's on mere orthodoxy uh, and it's by uh Gracie Olmstead. I, I met Gracie earlier this year at the, the Just Gospel Conference where we both spoke. And she is an awesome writer uh, and really just an, an awesome communicator in general. She's from Idaho and she has a perspective that somebody like myself, who's always lived in a big city, really needs to hear and I think needs to consider. Uh, we like her at the end campaign because she doesn't just fit into the conservative box or the progressive box. She's thinking through all these things critically and really trying to be as Christian as she can uh, when she en engages these these issues. Now, this particular article is an in-depth look at how the American market really crushes families in America sometimes, uh, especially the poor and minorities. Uh, the piece promotes a, a paradigm shift. And how we look at the purpose of our economy and how we treat families through our, our economic policy. Let me give you one uh, a quote from it. Uh, she says this. She says, fixing what's broken will require far more than a few tweaks uh, to the tax code. It will demand a, com a complete reevaluation of, of our economic system and governmental safety net. It will require us to consider who our economy is actually meant to serve and whether conservatives in particular are willing to back their pro-life, pro-family rhetoric with actual economic policy. 
we have to start asking ourselves uh, what we believe the telos or the chief end of our, econ of our economy is meant to be. Uh, again, a great article. I encourage everybody to read it. I mean, she provides examples of mothers going back to work just a week after they had their child. That's terrible. Uh, she talks about how uh, poor women are often forced to put their uh, their children in unsafe environments just to go to a job that's really paying them nothing. Uh, talks about really the, the alarming rates of depression and anxiety that, that go on because of how our markets are set up. Uh, I don't think this is against markets. It's just saying that we need to kind of have a paradigm shift in how those markets work and what their actual uh, mission is. Who are they uh, meant to serve? Chris, what were your thoughts about this uh, this article? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a very well written article and, and just a, a fascinating piece to read uh, uh, kind of in general. Um, it is actually on a topic that I think about quite a bit. One, as a father of four, uh, my wife and I are living this dynamic uh, every day. Um, you know, not only as a pastor, you know, now a pastor of church. Before I started pastoring the church, uh, I was a business owner. I ran a public affairs consulting firm uh, here in Chicago. My wife uh, is a teacher and an entrepreneur herself. And so we kind of uh, live these issues uh, all the time. When, when I first came into the church we actually had to deal with, you know, one of the folks on the staff of the church, uh, you know, got pregnant and, and we had to find out how to work through that. Um, and so th these, you know, this is something that I, I think about and, and, and read about uh, a lot. And, and I think it, it represents one of those opportunities for realignment that I really see in this current environment, because as the article rightly points out, um, there is an opportunity uh, to extend uh, and expand what it means in the public space to be pro-life, um, to not just have pro-life uh, kind of uh, abortion or, or health care policy approaches, but what does it look like to have a pro-life, pro-family um, economic policy approach as well? Uh, so I, I thought it was a, a really great article uh, and, and one that folks really read and get into this issue. Yeah, and it goes into depth about uh, paid family leave and why that's important. That's something that the AND campaign has advocated for. We think is, is really important to give families a chance to be family, parents a, a chance to, fam to, to, to parent, uh, which so often does not happen because of what uh, is required. Now, we're not against industry. We're not against hard work or any of those things. But we, we it's worth taking a look at how this is affecting the lives of our neighbors and ourselves. Uh, and just too often we make assumptions and, and we don't really examine those things. Now, we posted this on uh, our social media and a lot of people liked it. Some people disagreed with it. Both of those are fine. But then you got the folks who immediately start scoffing and they do it so quickly. You're like, did you even read the article? Right. They immediately start scoffing and talking about socialism, uh, not even fully examining what was in the article. If they even read it just lazily and it's very lazy using buzzwords to discredit this conversation. Uh, immediately. I mean, you look at our mentions. Oh, this is just socialism, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know Gracie all that well. I don't think she's a, she's a socialist. I know she comes from a conservative background. This I know. I know organizations that are primarily conservative organizations that care about paid family leave and think that there can be some government involvement in making sure that families are treated better and that our policy is more family oriented. 
So to say that it's automatically socialist is, is a bad deal. Now, I want to give you some background with the end campaign in this conversation, socialism versus, uh, versus capitalism. The end campaign doesn't believe that the Bible prescribes a certain economic system. That's our stance. While I think that the extremes of capitalism and the extremes of socialism likely violate Christian principles, to say that the Bible requires you know, our government to be socialist or requires our government to be capitalist or our system to be capitalist is going too far, right? I want people out there to know because I know socialism is somewhat trending. I think folks should know that socialism and statism have a myriad of problems too, right? Uh, they have some truly problematic things that has happen, happened through those systems throughout history, just as consumer capitalism does. And one of the things that I say over and over again, Chris, is that if you believe socialism is the best way to go about it, you not only need to tell people the good things about socialism, but the potential perils. And on the other side, which you do not see from the right a lot, if you're going to be a promoter of capitalism and you want to tell us the great things that capitalism can do, the innovation and all these other things. Then you also need to be aware and talk to people about the potential perils the excesses of capitalism as well. And that's just what we don't do. We jump on one side or the other and we don't really fully examine or critique it, uh, especially when we're talking to other believers. Now, my personal position uh, is in support of a smartly and well-regulated capitalism with a very healthy social safety net. Uh, that's my position. Uh, there are very smart people on, on both sides that disagree with me, and that's okay. And I think Within the framework that we're given and what the Bible talks about, there's room to disagree on economic policy. But we should all be concerned about what's happening to our neighbors and how they're being treated. And so we need to look at these policies and take them seriously. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I, I was going to say, as believers, you know, one of the things that, that I say all the time is that the biggest problem with any economic system uh, is actually the brokenness of the people in the system. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if you had uh, socialism working the way that the most idealistic socialists uh, envisioned that it would, it probably would, would be good for folks. And the same thing with a, a, a kind of consumer capitalism. Uh, but what happens when you look over history is that people get in these systems. Uh, and I remind people that, you know, the... The, the Israelites had a, a system that was not developed uh, at Harvard. It was uh, received by revelation from God, by Moses in a mountain. And still, that system, the Bible tells us, it is weak through the flesh, mm. right? Like, we are so broken and imperfect that no system that we promote is going to perfectly uh, address the issues. And so we we should never be so arrogant in any position as to as to suggest that our system that we believe in, that we developed, um, is, is going to work for everybody at all times. We have to be super diligent over these systems because we have to be super diligent over our own brokenness as individuals and as a uh, society of broken people. Man, that is such a good word, man. And, and please, as Christians, do not come into these conversations thinking that all poor people are lazy, that folks don't want to work. And that's it. We dumb down these conversations so much because we're scared of that one thing, whether it's the word socialism, whether it's something where it's the word free markets. We're so afraid of that thing that we're not thinking through the conversation. I mean, if you really 
process what some of these families are going through. Don't let your, you know, don't let your whole view be controlled by uh, what may be socialism and all that other stuff. I, I, you know, I've said several times, socialism sounds perfect. I mean, in theory, like Chris says, it sounds just awesome and the same with the other side, but it's not because we have people that are part of these systems and because we're broken, the systems are broken. All we're asking you to do today is think through these things and how we can help people in the best way and not necessarily leaning on some of the orthodoxy that we see coming from both sides. Any final words for this episode, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would just say that, you know, we, we talked a lot about economy uh, in, in, in this episode. And we we really, I think, as we come into this kind of new uh, season of politics and government, I think the church owes it to itself and to the world to really get into some of these conversations um, just about what what is the purpose of the economy? What is the meaning? Uh, what's a good theology of work? And uh, those are questions that we owe it to ourselves and to the world, I think, to think about. That's good. Again, read uh, Gracie Olmstead article at Mere Orthodoxy, Markets and the Strangulation of the American Family, a very worthwhile read, even if you don't agree with everything uh, that's in it. Well, I'm going to end the, the the episode like this. Look, it is a, a time of giving. Uh, we're recording this on Giving Giving Tuesday. You probably won't get it on, on that day, but please consider giving to uh, the Church Politics Podcast and the AND campaign in general. Look, we're a lean organization, but we put out a lot of content. We put a lot of thought into this podcast, into the con- into the content that we put out. We need your support. So, as I said before, don't just be uh, um, Uh, Don't just be a listener. Be a supporter. Join this movement because the movement's only as strong as uh, you guys get behind it. Uh, We are you and we want you to be involved in a real way. So please consider going to our Patreon, which is the church politics Patreon or going on the website and just supporting the end campaign in general. If it's fifty dollars, twenty five, five dollars a month, whatever you can give, we will greatly appreciate it because it takes us a lot of time to get this done. And uh, we need, you know, we need your help to make it work. So thanks again for joining us as always. And you know what I say, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. Came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.